You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 56... The shot heard round the world. So last week we finished the battles of Lexington and Concord, with thousands of angry militiamen chasing the exhausted remnants of Colonel Smith's column and General Percy's relief column back to Charlestown. As the sun rose on April 20, 1775, the day after the fighting, General Gage found Boston surrounded by thousands of hostiles, with more arriving every hour. As word of the events of April 19th spread, Local militia units traveled from all over New England to participate in the siege. General Gage found his army heavily outnumbered. British ships with cannon in the harbor and a well-entrenched artillery at Boston Neck kept the militia from overrunning the city and capturing the army. But the British were bottled up with nowhere to go unless they left the city by sea. For the next year, the two parties would remain facing one another with neither side able to take out the other. The siege of Boston had begun. General Artemis Ward, who had lay sick in bed on April 19th, rode to Cambridge, the command center for the provincial army. Ward took over command from General Heath. Now, none of the provincial generals had ever commanded more than a regiment. Many had only drilled in peacetime militia units and read books about military affairs. Now they had to attempt to organize this disorganized rabble of militia units into a real army. They set up entrenchments in front of Charlestown Neck and Boston Neck and tried to figure out what to do with the stream of volunteers who arrived with each passing day. Inside Boston, General Gage initially agreed to allow anyone to leave Boston who wished to do so. Doing this prevented a military insurrection inside the city and also reduced demand on food resources. In an age before refrigeration and modern food preservation techniques, the city relied on fresh food deliveries from the countryside. With those now cut off, city residents had to survive on salted meat and other provisions that the naval vessels shipped to Boston. Gage also required all civilians to surrender their guns, whether leaving or not. Now, even though Bostonians had been secreting large numbers of guns out of the city for months, Gage managed to collect another 2,500 guns and about 1,000 bayonets from the locals. After a few days, Gage started making it more difficult for anyone to leave town. First, he would not allow them to take their property with them. A few days later, he required passes to leave town, and those passes became increasingly difficult to obtain over the following days. Tories had raised concerns that without any patriots in the town, the militia might more likely bombard or burn the town. Gage did allow civilians to enter the city. Now, while Falmore exited than entered, any remaining loyalists in the colony sought protection in Boston 
now that loyalty to the crown was considered treason in the rest of the colony. No patriot leaders dared return to Boston. Except one, that is. Benjamin Church announced that he would go into the city to collect medical supplies. His comrades thought this was suicide. Of course, they didn't know General Gage was paying Church to spy on his friends and neighbors. When he went to Boston, Church met with General Gage and discussed the situation before returning back to the American lines. While he was there, Paul Revere's wife gave Church a note to give her husband. The note said she was sending 125 pounds sterling to him in Church's care, since he was stuck out in the country with nothing but the clothes on his back. And we know about this note because decades later it was discovered among General Gage's personal papers. No word on what happened to the money. But Church returned from Boston with a good story about being taken in for questioning and then released. A Gage did have to take one offensive action. A few months earlier, a group of Tories in Marchfield had asked for protection. Gage had deployed a hundred regulars to the town. Now, the day after Lexington, Patriots came looking for that isolated group of regulars. Over 1,000 militia surrounded the town but they did not have the resolve to storm the British lines. General Ward ordered General Thomas to take an additional 1,100 more men and artillery from Roxbury to Marchfield to capture or attack this small force. Fortunately for those regulars, General Gage acted faster. He requested Admiral Graves send a rescue party up the river to retrieve his men. Graves sent three small ships to Marshfield on the morning of April 20th. The regulars boarded and returned to Boston before the militia attacked. In Boston, British officers prepared reports on the events in Concord and wrote letters to friends and family back home. Some criticized the colonists for their refusal to face the regulars in a line of battle, instead firing from behind defenses and mostly running when attacked. Others, though, gained a new respect for the locals. Lord Percy had dismissed the militia weeks earlier, saying that they would run from the field if he ever even drew his saber from its scabbard. Now, after watching the provincials stand under fire, advance on the regulars, and inflict heavy casualties, he had to reassess his views. These people would not be easily conquered. General Gage collected reports from his officers and prepared his own report for London. But for whatever reason, Gage decided to downplay the events to his superiors. His report to Lord North covers the facts briefly, as do the reports of his subordinate officers. And in case you're interested, I included a link to the full text of General Gage's report on my blog site, blog.amrevpodcast.com. Now, Patriot leaders wanted to make sure their version of events reached a wider audience. Even before the British returned to Boston, Leaders sent riders out on the afternoon of April 19th, spreading the news of the regulars firing on the militia in Lexington. They wanted their side of the story to reach the people first. Since Paul Revere was busy with other matters, Isaac Bissell served as the primary messenger, carrying the news to Connecticut, where additional express riders carried the Massachusetts report to other colonies. In the days that followed, the Provincial Congress received reports or took depositions of people involved in the day's events. A committee of nine took 97 depositions over the next three days. 
We know much of Paul Revere's efforts on those days because of the report he wrote for Congress. And many of these reports ended up in the journals of the Continental Congress. Again, link on my blog if you want to read them. Committees of correspondence sent copies of these to the other colonies via express riders. Now, patriots thought it critical that they had to get out their side of the story first. The events of the day could be painted as out-of-control colonists attacking soldiers who simply marched down the road, or regulars terrorizing the colonists who merely defended themselves. Who fired first at Lexington became an important point of contention. The colonists claimed the regulars fired first, while the British officers all claimed that someone fired at the soldiers before the regulars returned fire. The leaders in Massachusetts wanted to convince the other colonies to join them in the fight. If the others believed Massachusetts had provoked an unjustified fight, Massachusetts might be left on its own. Word of Lexington and Concord reached the surrounding colonies in New England first. Many militia from Connecticut, Rhode Island, and New Hampshire rushed to Boston to assist their neighbors in the siege against the regulars. That New York had been leaning loyalist, with many Patriot leaders on the defensive. News of the battle, though, gave Patriot leaders the chance to seize the initiative. Isaac Sears, head of the New York Sons of Liberty, assembled a mob which broke into the city armory and stole over 500 muskets. The now armed mob went in search of prominent Tories. One of the Tories they sought out was the president of King's College, known today as Columbia University. The old Reverend Miles Cooper lectured on the importance of class distinction and adherence to Anglicanism as the state religion. He had condemned most patriot activities, not just as bad politically, but as deep moral sin. Fortunately for Cooper, when the mob came for him, one of his students used his charm with the mob to turn them away. That student, Alexander Hamilton, was already part of the Patriot cause and knew many of those in the mob. His efforts that night gave Cooper enough time to flee to a naval vessel in New York Harbor. From there, Cooper headed back to England. Hamilton decided to drop out of school and become an artillery officer in the new Continental Army. He would go on to inspire the face on the $10 bill, as well as a hip-hop musical. He did a few other things, too, which I'll discuss in future episodes. Meanwhile, Sears and the mob went after a few other leaders in New York City that night, but all had fled or remained in hiding. They had to satisfy themselves with marching through the streets. Patriot fever swept the city and the colony generally over the next few weeks. The New York Assembly dissolved to be replaced by a Patriot Provincial Congress. The small contingent of regulars in New York City had to take refuge on Navy vessels in the harbor. New York City fell completely under Patriot control. News reached Philadelphia a short time after New York. Now, Philadelphia, which had hosted the First Continental Congress and was weeks away from hosting the Second, remained divided. There were the traditional Loyalists and Patriots, but there were also large groups of religious communities, including, of course, the influential Quakers, as well as German-speaking communities, which held deeply pacifist views opposed to any war. Quaker societies had already expelled several prominent members for their involvement in the Patriot movement. Quakers were not only pacifists, but at this time strongly opposed any attempts to create rifts 
in the established order. Support for the Patriot cause, though, was already creating rifts within the Quaker community itself. Pennsylvania also had some influential loyalists. Joseph Galloway, who you may recall had been the voice of moderation at the First Continental Congress, spent much of the winter trying to discourage the radical influence that he expected at the Second Continental Congress. Galloway found himself increasingly siding with the Loyalist camp. He saw the Patriot cause moving headlong from protest into outright treason. Governor Penn also worked with Galloway to get the colony to submit its own petitions to the king rather than acting collectively through the Continental Congress. A word of Lexington and Concord immediately changed the dynamic in Pennsylvania. Patriot leaders seized the opportunity to create new militia units. Unlike its neighbors to the north and south, the largely pacifist Pennsylvania did not have near-universal participation in a local militia. News of the fighting in New England, however, inspired thousands of men to arm and drill. A meeting of 8,000 patriots in Philadelphia unanimously resolved to form a militia to protect their property, liberty, and lives. Outside of Philadelphia, especially in the West, patriots' sentiment grew as well. For example, on May 16th, the small town near Pittsburgh passed what became known as the Hannah's Town Resolves. The resolves established an active militia with the intent of fighting any British soldiers who entered the colony. The people of Hannahstown, led by Arthur St. Clair, who we'll hear more of later, vowed to fight until Parliament repealed all the controversial laws. It asserted that Parliament did not have the right to tax the colonies and pretty much had to put things back to the way they were before the Stamp Act. Many other small towns passed similar measures. Philadelphia did not see the radicals rampaging through the streets, harassing Tories, as happened elsewhere, but the events of Lexington and Concord definitely set the colony toward active preparation for war. Patriot voices grew louder, loyalists quieter, and preparations for armed conflict grew more intense. When word of the fighting reached Baltimore, local patriots took control of the city arsenal, seizing arms and ammunition, much like in New York. The royal governor in Maryland had not tried to call a session of the legislature in over a year and had already essentially ceded control of the colony to the Assembly of Freemen at the Annapolis Convention. The Patriots now took military control as well as civil control of the colony. Virginia had already begun to shift to a war footing even before the news of the fighting in Massachusetts reached the colony. The governor, Lord Dunmore, had dissolved the House of Burgesses the year before after they called for a day of fasting and prayer in response to the Boston Port Act. Patriot leaders were already organizing their own militia for the coming contest. Early on the morning of April 21st, less than two days after Lexington, but before word had arrived, Dunmore ordered the Royal Marines to seize all the gunpowder in the Williamsburg Powder House and store it aboard a Navy ship. That act was sufficient cause for Patrick Henry to march on Williamsburg at the head of militia companies determined to challenge the governor. Dunmore was already packing to flee when a messenger brought word of the fighting in Massachusetts. The news only reinforced his desire to get his family to safety of a Navy ship before the militia reached town. The incident over the powder got resolved a few weeks later when the governor agreed to pay the cost of the powder. 
and after things settled, the powder was returned, though kept under guard. Dunmore issued an order for Henry's arrest, though by that time Henry was away at Congress in Philadelphia. Now, by coincidence, when word of Lexington reached Mount Vernon about a week after the battle, George Washington was there at his home with a house guest, retired British officer Charles Lee. Within days, both men would be headed to Philadelphia separately, each in contention to be named commander-in-chief of the new Continental Army. The two men, Washington and Lee, were about the same age and had fought together, along with Gage, under General Braddock at the Battle of Monongahela two decades earlier. After Washington hung up his uniform, Lee went on to fight in more engagements. He received a wound in the first attempt to take Fort Carillon at Ticonderoga back in the French and Indian War. He then fought in Europe for several years. But after being denied a promotion, Lee became a staunch Whig opposing the British government. In 1773, he moved to America, where he purchased a large plantation in Virginia. Now, at the outbreak of war, he saw an opportunity to put his skills to use for his new adopted homeland. In Charleston, South Carolina, patriots had already swung into action before receiving word of Lexington and Concord. The legislature had been fighting with the royal governor for years. In early 1775, the South Carolina Provincial Congress began meeting after the governor refused to call the colonial legislature into session. On April 17th, the Congress decided to intercept incoming official correspondence to the governor. They received Lord Dartmouth's instructions to all the colonies to begin using more aggressive force to put down any rebellious activities. To prevent this, Congress took control of the three arsenals around Charlestown seizing all the royal arms, ammunition, and gunpowder. All of this happened before they received news of Lexington and Concord. On May 8th, a ship brought a newspaper from New England which described the battles. With that news, the Provincial Congress approved the creation of two regiments of soldiers and a squadron of rangers, about 2,000 men altogether, to support the Patriot cause. Across the continent, the fighting at Lexington and Concord forced everyone to pick a side. It became nearly impossible for most people to remain neutral or try to stay out of it. The only question in many colonies outside of New England was whether they would decide the violence had gone too far and remain loyal to the king, or join their fellow colonists in united opposition to British tyranny. The upcoming Second Continental Congress would be where many colonial political leaders would have to go on record in choosing a side. And we'll get into that discussion in a future episode. But before we get into all that, I want to speak to one final thing today, the reaction in London to getting the news of Lexington and Concord. Now, as I said, General Gage spent a few days collecting reports from his officers and writing his own reports. He sent them to London on April 24th aboard the Suki, a slow-moving commercial vessel. Meanwhile, the Provincial Congress wanted to get their side of the story to London first. They hired the ship Caro, captained by Richard Derby, a member of the Provincial Congress. The Caro left the port of Salem on the evening of April 28th, four days after the Suki. Now, unlike the Suki, though, the Caro traveled without freight, trying to speed across the Atlantic and arrive first. Captain Derby successfully avoided British ships patrolling the American coast and raced his ship across the ocean. 
Derby next had to avoid having his documents seized before they could be published. So rather than sail into London, Derby docked at Southampton and traveled overland to London. He had instructions to deliver the information to Benjamin Franklin, the colonial agent in London. By this time, though, Franklin was back in Pennsylvania, having left London for good in March. Derby soon made contact with Arthur Lee, another colonial agent, who got the documents to the mayor of London and steadfast supporter of the colonies, John Wilkes. The story almost immediately hit the newspapers, and the king, Lord North, and Lord Dartmouth had to discover the outbreak of hostilities along with the rest of the public, reading the colonists' side of the story in the London Evening Post. Now, Dartmouth attempted to summon Derby for more information. However, probably out of concern for his arrest, Derby slipped out of London on June 1st. He had prearranged for his ship to leave Southampton and meet up with him in Falmouth, probably to avoid any government orders that might have been sent to Southampton to prevent his ship from leaving. Derby returned to Salem, leaving his ship even before it docked on July 19th, so that he could report his completed mission to the Provincial Congress. It took nearly two more weeks for the Suki, containing General Gage's reports, to reach Lord Dartmouth's desk on June 10th. By that time, everyone in London was well acquainted with the Patriot version of events. Gage's reports largely confirmed the events of the day, other than his claim that the militia had fired first at Lexington. With blood spilled, there was no more consideration of compromise in London. Dartmouth wrote to Gage on July 1st, saying in part, quote, From the moment the blow was struck, and the town of Boston invested by the rebels, there was no longer any reason to doubt the intention of the people of the Massachusetts Bay to commit themselves in open rebellion. The other three New England provinces have taken the same part, and in fact all America, Quebec, Nova Scotia, and the Floridas accepted, is in arms against Great Britain and the people involved in the guilt of levying war against the king in every sense of the expression. In this situation, every effort must be made both by sea and land to subdue the rebellion. Now, Dartmouth also chided Gage about the fact that rebels had delivered their reports to London well in advance of his. He suggested that, in any future event of importance, it will be thought proper to send your dispatches by one of the light vessels of the fleet. So, the Patriots won the first round of propaganda, both in the colonies and in England. Winning a war, though, would require not only convincing the world that their cause was just, but that the colonies could defeat the British Empire in a clash of arms. Now, next week, I'm going to do something a little different. As the provincial army faces the regulars, I'm going to step back and give some background information on the British regular army and the New England militia, how each army operated and how they differed. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. 
You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week, and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Okay, so we're back again for the American Revolution Podcast Book Corner. I want to thank everyone who's been reaching out via my email at mtroy.history at gmail.com, as well as on Twitter, where I am at amrevpodcast, as well as Facebook. I really appreciate all of your comments. Also, I want to give another quick plug for my blog which you can see at blog.amrevpodcast.com. For podcast listeners, the blog offers a variety of pictures and maps that will help explain what I talked about each week. It also includes links to websites, free ebooks on archive.org, which, by the way, is an amazing and free resource for all sorts of things, as well as links to books that I've used in my research or which make good reading on the topic of the week. And just a reminder, if you use any of those book links to Amazon and buy anything at that site after following one of those links, you help support the show by getting Amazon to give me a sales commission. So, to today's book recommendation, The Spirit of 74, How the American Revolution Began, by Ray and Marie Raphael. Now, this book, published in 2015, is a little over 200 pages. It covers the relatively ignored but important period from the Boston Tea Party through the battles of Lexington and Concord. It shows how colonists, particularly in New England, steadily moved away from accepting British authority and developed the willingness eventually to take up arms against the king. This is the period when John Adams said the revolution really began in the hearts and minds of the people. If you want to learn more about how we got from complaining about taxes to shooting at soldiers, this book provides a wonderful guide. Ray and Marie Raphael are a husband and wife team who each have written a number of other interesting books from the era. If you want to learn more, you may want to check out Ray Raphael's website, rayraphael.com. I've added a link to his site on this week's blog post, List of Useful Sites which is available, of course, at blog.amrevpodcast.com. Again, I want to remind you I am not paid for these book recommendations. My picks are based solely on my interest in the book. However, if you do click on any of the Amazon book links, you will help support the podcast when you purchase Amazon products. Well, that's all for today. Please come back next week for more American Revolution podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. 
Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for The Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.